Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. In addition to everybody who's joining us in person, we have tons of people worshiping with us online right now. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome in our online family. So awesome to have you guys with us as well. And today we're in week two of our series called Relationship Goals, and we're going to be talking about marriage. Now, next month, Alice and I will have been married for 13 years. And some of you guys are thinking, wow, 13 years, that's a long time. Others of you are thinking uh, they're just babies. And I get that. It's all about perspective. But 13 years ago, we got married. And on our honeymoon, we took a Caribbean cruise. And we had an absolute blast. We stopped at different islands and just had a ton of fun. But I'll never forget one experience we had. We stopped at this one island. We're going to be there all day long, do some excursions, all that great stuff. And I I knew we'd have to eat lunch on the island if we didn't want to waste our time. And we had just been eating on our ship. And so I wanted to find a safe restaurant for us to eat at. Because, you know, when you're in a foreign country, you're not sure about their health regulations and all that kind of stuff. So you're just not sure how safe it is. So I asked our taxi driver, I say taxi driver, it's kind of like a cart that we were in. But still, I asked him, what's the best place to eat on the island? And he said, Hard Rock Cafe. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I've heard of Hard Rock Cafe. You know, that's a chain, and I trust that chain. So, okay, that'll be great. We'll find the Hard Rock Cafe. Where is it? And he dropped us off at this street that had all these shops where people could buy trinkets and souvenirs, and Allison wanted to shop anyway, buy some stuff for family back home. And he said, just keep walking down that street. It'll be the end of that street. I'm like, okay, we can do that. So we get out and we go shopping. That's what Allison wanted to do. And we stop at all these little booths and shops and huts and all that kind of stuff. And Allison spends way too much money, but it's getting close to lunchtime. And I keep looking around for the Hard Rock Cafe and I can't find it. So I asked one of the people that are working in one of the booths, I was like, hey, where's Hard Rock Cafe? And he goes, oh, it's on down this street. Just keep walking. I was like, okay, cool. So we kept on walking stopped at a few more shops because again, that's what Allison wanted to do. Kept spending money. And then we still didn't see Hard Rock Cafe anywhere. So I asked somebody else, I was like, hey, where's the Hard Rock Cafe? And this little lady working at a little shop, she goes, just keep walking on down the street. You'll see it. You can't miss it. So we walked a little bit more and we walked and we walked and we walked. And I kept asking people along the way, where's Hard Rock Cafe? Oh, just keep walking. It's at the end of the street. Well, finally, we made it back to our cruise ship. We made it back to where it was docked and there was a little booth there with some of the uh, workers from our cruise ship. And I was just like, hey, did I miss Hard Rock Cafe? I've been looking for it. I can't find it anywhere. And these guys from our cruise ship said, uh, Hard Rock Cafe closed like two years ago on the island. And I was like, I've just been asking locals and they've been telling me to keep walking. And they said, yeah, that's what they do. They want you to walk through their shop. So they keep telling you that it's there. You ever been hangry? You know what I'm talking about? You know, hangry is a combination between hungry and angry. That was me in that moment. And I was frustrated, but I didn't want to show myself, you know, I'm newly married, I want to still impress my new bride, you know? So I was like, okay, well, where's the best place to eat on the island? And the guy looks at me and he said, honestly, you really want to know the best place to eat on the island? I was like, yeah, tell me what it is. We're hungry. And he said, on the ship. You need to get back on the ship and eat. And I was just like, man, you ever been hangry? I mean, that was me. I was still hangry in that moment. And I was so frustrated, but we got back on the ship and we went and we, and we had, had a good lunch. What we did, it was a late lunch, but it was a good lunch. But the whole time I just kept thinking, I was set up, we were set up for failure. Because it didn't matter how hard we looked, didn't matter how far we walked, didn't matter how intense our search was, we weren't going to find Hard Rock Cafe. We were listening to the wrong voices. And it didn't matter how hard we looked, we weren't going to find what we were looking for. We were set up from the very beginning for failure. Something that I've learned in my 13 years of marriage and 14 years in full-time preaching ministry 
is that many of us, maybe even most of us, were set up for relational failure when it comes to marriage. Because the world has tried to define marriage for us, and the world has said, hey, just go down this path and do these things, and you'll have a content, satisfied, fulfilled, married life. But we've been listening to the wrong voices. And so we keep buying into the lies of this world, and we keep believing these half-truths that the world's trying to sell us, thinking that eventually we're going to get to wherever it is we're trying to go, but the problem is we never actually reach fulfillment and satisfaction in marriage because we're listening to the wrong voices. We never arrive at the incredible, awesome, amazing purpose that God intended for marriage. I went and visited one of our older church members this week in the nursing home. I went with one of our other staff members, and many of you probably know this uh, older church member, great man of God, and he was sharing some stories and giving us some wisdom, and he said something while we were there, and as soon as I got back to the office, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it, and this is what he said. He said, if you don't know where you need to go, then you'll never know what direction to take. And I thought that was great. It's also wise. If you don't know where you need to go, then you're not going to know what direction to take. You've got to have a goal in mind. You've got to know what to shoot for. It's kind of like this swing set that Alice and I got our kids this past year. I've talked about this before in past sermons. We decided to get our kids a new swing set. It came in three boxes, and when we opened up those boxes, it was full of pieces, pieces that scattered all throughout our backyard. I got a couple guys from our church to help me build it because I'm not handy at all, and I needed their assistance. I needed their help, but we got all these pieces out, and they put it together, and I just brought them tools and stuff, but still, we put it together, and now it's an awesome-looking swing set, but what if I came to you, and I gave you a pile of wood, some screws, nuts, bolts, some plastic pieces that go along with this swing set. And I said, you have in front of you all the pieces, all the parts that you need to build a swing set. But I didn't give you an instruction manual and I didn't give you a picture even of what the swing set is supposed to look like. I don't care how handy you are, you would probably struggle to build exactly what the designer of this swing set intended. See, before we go any further, I want to establish a truth that I think we all need to get from the very beginning, and it's this. Marriage is God's idea. It's not my idea. I didn't come up with it. I didn't invent it. It's not your idea. You didn't come up with it. You didn't invent it. Marriage is God's idea. He's the creator, the author, the designer of marriage. And if you want to have a healthy marriage, a marriage that is fulfilling and satisfying, you got to do it his way because he knows what's best. He's the one that designed it. He's the one that created it. See, every single time that Jesus was asked about marriage, and he was asked about marriage a lot. I mean, marriage, there are questions about marriage back in Jesus' day as well as today. And every single time Jesus was asked about marriage, he always pointed back to the creation account. He always referenced the Genesis account. One of those occasions found in the Gospel of Mark, and look at what Jesus says in chapter 10. After he's asked about marriage, Jesus responds, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's sexual language, but it's more than that as well. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Every time Jesus asks about marriage, he goes back to the creation account to the book of Genesis. Why? 
Because Jesus understood that marriage is God's idea. So I just want to tell you, I am not an expert in marriage. I know I've got 13 years almost of experience, but I am not an expert in marriage. In fact, I told Allison this week that I was preaching on marriage and she laughed out loud. So I'm not an expert at marriage, okay? I will own that right now, but I know the one who is. God, as the author, creator, and designer of marriage, is the only true expert in marriage. And believe it or not, God created marriage for our good. God didn't create marriage to frustrate us or to complicate life or anything like that. God designed marriage for our good. It's a good thing when we have his picture in mind, when we have his goal in mind. The problem is, like all good things in life, Satan has a tendency to hijack, to sabotage what God intended for our good. And right now, if you heard that we were preaching on marriage and you got a little tense, maybe a little sweaty, a little nervous, I just want to speak to you for a quick moment. Take a deep breath. If you've been hurt by divorce, if your marriage right now is rocky and isn't what it should be, maybe you're single and you would love to be married but you're not and in the past, unfortunately, some churches have made you feel like an incomplete person because you're not married, Let me just say, I am sorry if you've ever been judged wrongly by a church. That's not who we are. And no matter what your marital status is right now, we love you and we are here for you. You're part of our family and we want to let you know your value, your worth is found in Jesus Christ and not in your marital status. So I just want to get that out right now. Because our value, our identity is not defined by what we've done in the past or what's been done to us. It is defined by what Jesus did for us on the cross. So if you've ever been in a church that has put shame on you or made you feel guilty because of your marital status or past marital mistakes, that's not us. I just want to let you know that we love you. And we're going to talk about marriage today, even though it might be a little bit of an uncomfortable subject, because I believe that marriage will help us understand who God is. And I believe that the only way that we will have healthy marriages, the only way that we will reach the full potential for good in our marriages is if we do it God's way. And I think this sermon can teach us a lot about God, whether we are married today or not. Because like I said, the ultimate goal of marriage is to help us understand the love of God. Whether we are married ourselves or we just witness marriage when it comes to other people's lives. See, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, as the scriptures say, and what is Paul going to do? He's going to do exactly what Jesus did. He's going to go back to the creation account in the book of Genesis. It says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I want you to notice a couple things that Paul points out here. Paul gives us here God's picture for marriage. He goes back to the creation account just like Jesus did. He lets us know marriage is God's idea. And the first thing that Paul does is he gives us God's intended structure for marriage. And you probably saw this when Jesus quoted Genesis and here when Paul quoted Genesis as well. God's intended structure is this. God intended marriage to be a relationship between one man and one woman where he unites the two as one. He unites the two as one. 
Guys, just because you have sex with somebody doesn't mean that God has united you as one, okay? God is the one who does the uniting together when you enter into a covenant relationship with him. And God intended marriage to be a covenant that one man makes with one woman. Now, I want to acknowledge, this is not a popular structure for marriage in some, uh, among some groups today. And I know that. And some of you right now may not like this definition, and you may even be mad at me for saying it. And I just want to let you know, if that's you, if you don't like this definition, if you're mad at me for saying it, I just want to let you know right now, I love you. And I'm not mad at you. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. I'm willing, our leadership is willing to have a loving conversation with you about this. I don't hate anybody. I love you. Jesus loves all people. And so I'm going to continue to teach this and our church is going to teach us because, again, we believe marriage is God's idea, not our idea. And our love for people doesn't change the fact that marriage is God's idea. But even if you disagree with me in this moment, I still love you. And if you've ever been made to feel, you know, bad or been judged in another church because you didn't necessarily agree with this definition of marriage, I'm sorry that that's the way other churches have treated you. We won't treat you that way. We, we love you. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about that. But I am going to say that even though, I said there's no buts, but, but, but I am going to say, with that said, my love for you, which I don't doubt, does not change the fact that God is the one who created marriage. And I believe the only way that a marriage will reach its full potential for good is if we do it God's way. So this is God's intended structure. And sometimes in the church we sit back and we say, okay, I'm married and it's one man and one woman. I got the structure down so we're good. But that's not the end of the story. See, a lot of times we get the structure down, but we miss God's intended purpose for marriage. And his purpose for marriage is equally as important as the structure for marriage. And so what's the purpose for marriage? Did you catch what Paul said? After he says it's a, it's a union that God puts together of one man and one woman, Paul then goes on to say, this is an illustration of Jesus and his church, how Jesus loves his church. This is what I want you to understand. See, the whole point of marriage is to display God's love that he has for his people. The purpose of marriage is to put God's story, his greater story, on display for the world to see. Marriage is supposed to be an illustration of God's love, his grace, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his plan, his purposes. That's what marriage is supposed to be. You are to experience that with your spouse, but it's also supposed to be a witness and a testimony for the rest of the world. And when you lose sight of this purpose for marriage, it's easy for Satan to hijack it. It's easy for Satan to sabotage it. And it can happen to the best of us, and it happened to a couple in Scripture named David and Michael. You may have heard of David before. He became king of Israel, and he was known for defeating the giant Goliath. He was also known over and over again in Scripture for being a man after God's own heart. But his wife, Michael, you may not have heard of her. She was a daughter of Saul, the previous king before David. And David and Michael, they love one another, but they let Satan hijack their marriage. And it can happen to the best of us. Like I said, David, he's known for being a man after God's own heart. Over and over in scripture, David is called a man after God's own heart. But David wasn't always great with relationships. And we're gonna see that today. So 
Basically, what's going on here is that by 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is where we're going to be studying, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, that's where we're going to be, 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the Old Testament. By 2 Samuel 6, David is now king. He's recently become king. Saul is dead. The previous king is dead. And so David is now king, and a great revival is breaking out all throughout Israel. And this was a revival unlike any the nation had seen for a long time. And one thing that happens as the people turn back to God is David recovers the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was this fixture that represented God's presence and his power among the people. And it had been captured by one of Israel's foreign enemies. But David recovers it and he brings it back to Jerusalem, the city of God, the capital city of God's people. And as David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs, to Jerusalem, a great parade breaks out, a celebration breaks out, a huge worship service breaks out. All the people of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, they come out and they worship God like they never had before. And here's the thing, David, he, partic he participates in this worship service. In fact, listen to what the scripture says. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel, the whole nation here, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So I want you to imagine what's going on here. The entire city is rejoicing in God. They are celebrating this revival that's taking place. The Ark of the Covenant is returning to the capital city of God. And David the king, he takes off his royal robes. And he wears nothing but a linen ephod, which is kind of like a one-piece jumper that servants would wear to symbolize, hey, before the king of kings, we're all servants. David humbles himself. And David dances before the Lord. That's right, I said dances. If you grew up in a church that thought dancing was a sin, uh, they probably had problems with this passage here. I'll never forget uh, talking to a preacher one time who said, technically that word in Hebrew doesn't mean dancing. It means leaping around in concentric circles. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't see a difference, okay? But anyway, whatever, okay. But still, David was dancing before the Lord. David's excited, and just imagine... When you see your king get involved in this worship celebration like this, this party like this, dancing around, imagine how this pumped up the rest of the crowd. Imagine how excited everybody else got. All of Israel is excited on this day. There hadn't been a worship service like this in years. Everyone's excited except for one person. That's Michael, David's wife. Read on in the passage. It says that as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. That word despise means to hold with contempt. It means to hate. She hated him in this moment. I mean, this is a sad moment for their marriage. It's sad whenever one spouse says they hate the other, and that's what's going on here. David doesn't realize that's how Michael feels until he gets back home. Let's read on and see what happens. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. I want you to hear the sarcasm in her voice, okay? Disrobing in the side of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. I love that language, any vulgar fellow would, okay. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Probably not the healthiest response here, okay? 
hey, I'm better than your daddy. Yeah, probably not what he should have said, okay, but he did. Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I, notice who he's all about here, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more dignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own, my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, you might think that David and Michael were in a loveless marriage. I mean, there are a lot of political marriages that took place in that day and age. They still take place today. So you might assume, okay, David, when he becomes king, wants to consolidate power, so he marries the daughter of the former king in order to do just that. But that wasn't the case at all. David and Michael at one point very much loved one another. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. This was before Saul was even dead. In fact, Michael will hide David at one point because Saul wants to kill David. He, Saul sees David as competition to his throne. So Michael will actually betray her father in order to protect David. That's how much she loved him. At one point, Michael is taken away from David and David goes out and fights for her. I mean, these two loved one another. They were willing to sacrifice their own lives for one another. So how did they get to this point that we just read about? How'd they get here? One of the saddest lines in this entire passage is the last one that we read in verse 23 when it says, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now I've heard some people say, well that's because God was punishing Michael because she questioned David and this was God cursing Michael. The Bible doesn't say that and I don't think that's true. I think if that was true, the Bible would have told us that. Let's put two and two together. The Bible never says that David and Michael reconciled. In fact, we don't hear anything more about their relationship after this. I think what happened is they never slept together again. They lived under the same roof, but they were miles apart. David will go on to have other wives. I mean, kings in this day and age had multiple wives. And he'll have children by other wives. But David and Michael, they never have any kids. I think it's because they let Satan hijack their marriage. They let pride, selfishness, immaturity, jealousy, you name it, hijack, sabotage their marriage. And here's the thing. It didn't happen overnight. Psychologist Carol Tarvis in her book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. By the way, I think that's a great title to a book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. She says this, the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-righteousness. I think what happened was there were probably a lot of small issues that were never dealt with. They snowballed, they grew, until it got to this point, and then they never, they never turned back. And I think we're given this passage because this is what happens in life a lot. You see, you students of God's word know that there are two types of narrative passages. There are prescriptive texts and there are descriptive texts. And a prescriptive text tells us how life should be, but a descriptive text tells us how life really is, but it doesn't have to be. And that's this type of passage. This is a descriptive passage that is saying, hey, this is how life often is, but it doesn't have to be. And so I think we can learn from the mistakes that David and Michael made, and I think by studying their example, which is not a good one, we can set some goals for our own marriages to make sure we 
we have a healthy marriage, a marriage like God intended us to have. And the first thing that I'm gonna point out from this passage is this. I think this passage shows us the importance of spiritually growing together. Because as we look at David and Michael, they were on two different spiritual pages. They were spiritually miles apart. And so the first goal that I would like for us to set in all of our marriages, or if you're thinking about getting married one day, is find somebody who you can grow together with spiritually. This is so important. Because so often, the reason why there are problems in our marriages is because either the husband or the wife, or maybe both, aren't right with God. Their hearts aren't right with God. And so because of that, anytime conflict happens, what comes out of them isn't the character of Jesus, but it's the character of the culture and this world. Let me illustrate it like this. I actually got this illustration from a friend of mine who preaches. I stole it from him, so it's not original to me, but when he made this point, I thought it was great, and I thought I would adapt it to my purposes today. I'm gonna illustrate this using Mrs. Cup and Mr. Cup, okay? Blue beads, uh, blue beads and pink beads. And so let's say that one day, Mr. Cup meets Mrs. Cup. Now, she wasn't Mrs. Cup just yet. She was uh, Mrs. Chalice. She came from a fluent family. Okay, so she came from, you know, the upper crust of society. But she meets Mr. Cup. They're in college or whatever. And so he comes over to her, and he's like, sup. And she looks at him, and she's like, hey. And so they flirt a little bit, and then he asks her out. And they go out, and they have a good time. And so they date for a while and everything's great because dating is kind of the art of deception, you know? So he acts like he appreciates all those chick flicks that she likes and she goes to his pickup basketball games and says things like, you know, I have no idea why a college didn't offer you a scholarship. You're great, you know? And so they flirt with one another. Everything's great. And then one day they decide to get married. And they get married and for a while again, everything's rosy, everything's great and wonderful. And then one day she comes home. And he's been home all day long and she told him before she left, she wanted him to make sure that, you know, his clothes were picked up and, you know, that the dishes were washed, all that good stuff. And she gets home and guess what? Dishes are still dirty in the sink. Clothes are still all over the floor. Their apartment that they're living in is an absolute wreck. And he's sitting on the couch watching a ball game. And so she hints around for him to do what he promised he would do, but he doesn't do it. And he has the nerve to pick up his cell phone and text one of his buddies. One of his buddies comes over to watch the game with him. And she's just standing there watching them watch the game. And then finally his thick-headed buddy leaves. And when he leaves, she then hints around for, how come you didn't do this stuff? And he's like, what? What are you talking about? And so they start to have some words and they bump into one another. Now, figuratively speaking, they bump into one another. And she's, I thought you were going to do this, and I thought you were going to do that, and I thought you were going to do this. And they're like, where did that come from? I never knew that side of him or her before. But this becomes a pattern. And they start to have these occurrences over and over again, and they say things like, well, you never, and you always. And then one day, she gets upset, or she goes and sees mom, she spends time with her mom and her sister, and he, well, we don't really know where guys go, but anyway, he goes somewhere. <laughs> and her mom says, hey, I never liked him anyway, and her sister says, I didn't either, and so she comes back with ammunition, and she says, hey, my mom says, and my sister says, and he says, well, your mom's half crazy, your sister can't get a man, and so they just continue to go at it. <laughs> and they're like, Wow. Where did this come from? 
Can I tell you where it came from? This is profound. Right here. Jesus puts it like this. Jesus says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guys, if you're not right with Jesus, if your heart isn't right with God, what's gonna come out of you isn't his love and his grace and his forgiveness. What's gonna come out of you is toxic tendencies that reflect the world's character more than his. And that's why it's so important that we pursue Jesus as individuals, but also together as a couple. Studies show that only one in 10,000 marriages end in divorce when couples regularly pray together and worship together. The more time you spend together with Jesus, the more he will rub off on your marriage. Because here's the thing, conflict is going to happen. Like 99.9% of marriages have seasons of conflict. You're not gonna get out of it, okay? You're gonna have conflict, but when you have conflict, What comes out of you, well, that will depend on how healthy your relationship with Jesus is. Because what we need to understand is our deepest needs are met through our maker, not our mate. We both need a savior desperately. And so we need to be pursuing him together. The second thing that I find in this passage is that David and Michael seem to be very selfish here. You know, she's comparing him to her father and he's all about him and then he puts down her father and all that. They seem to be very selfish in this moment. And so goal number two, if you're married or thinking about getting married, this is the second goal I would love for you guys to pursue. Live by the motto, you first, me second. The best relationship advice I ever heard came from Jesus. Jesus says this, do for others what you want them to do for you. I don't think we need to read another book on marriage. We just need to do that. If we did that, imagine what our marriages would look like. Imagine what our culture would look like if everybody lived by that teaching. See, we need to have a you first, me second mindset when it comes to every relationship, but especially in our marriages. So what are you doing right now to serve your spouse? What are you doing right now to put them first? I want to challenge you every single day, do something, at least one thing, to serve your spouse, to put him or her first. Run errands for them. Leave them an encouraging note. Send them an encouraging text message. Bring them coffee or breakfast in bed. Give them some time away from the kids so they can have a break. Do something to serve your spouse. And I'm telling you, when you have a you first, me second attitude, it is a game changer. It's a game changer when it comes to your own social life as a couple, when it comes to your household, it's a game changer when it comes to your sex life. Put the other person first. Put their needs first. And if you're dating somebody right now, let me speak to you. If you're dating somebody who has a me first, you second attitude, and that's how they treat you, you need to rethink that relationship because that's not the way of Jesus. See, a you first, me second attitude, that's grounded in grace. And as those of us who have received God's grace, the more we receive it, the more we want to share it and show it to others. Relationships struggle when one person thinks that they are less sinful than the other. We need to realize we're all in need of grace and show that same grace to one another. As Ephesians 4 says, It says in Ephesians 4 to be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now one more goal that I think we need to shoot for that this passage reveals, and it's found in the fact that David and Michael, that they stop pursuing one another. 
I said the saddest verse in this passage is verse 23 and says, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. If I can give you a third goal to shoot for, it's this. Never stop pursuing your spouse. Now, this is going to take work, but anything of value requires work. You wouldn't try to start a business and make it successful without wanting to put in a little bit of work, right? You're not going to expect for a garden to flourish in your backyard if you don't put some work into it. Anything of value requires some work, and that's true for our marriages as well. Relationships don't survive on autopilot. Complacency is the enemy of any marriage, of any relationship, In Genesis 2, that verse that both Jesus and Paul kept going back to, says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That word united literally means in Hebrew to cling to or to pursue relentlessly. That's what we're called to do. Now, we understand pursuing one another when we're dating, but this is something we're supposed to do for the rest of our lives, pursue our spouses, and it takes work. But it's what we have to do if we want our marriage to continue to be healthy and strong and what God intended it to be. So let me give you some practical ways to pursue your spouse. Have intentional, you may have heard me say this before, have intentional face-to-face time. Have conversations with your spouse. Set aside time every single day to have real conversation with your spouse. Ask them about their day. Even if you need to work on some questions to ask your spouse so that you keep the conversation going, do it. Have intentional face-to-face time. Have intentional side-by-side time. In other words, do activities together. Be interested in each other's hobbies. Be be interested in the interests of the person you're interested in. Do things together. Have intentional side-by-side time. Go on trips together. Spend time together. And then this last one, you've heard me say it before, have intentional belly-to-belly time. And this is something that is reserved exclusively for the marriage covenant. But have belly-to-belly time. Guys, I don't think anything has been hijacked more by Satan in our culture than the gift of sex. Sex is a gift from God. He intended it for our good, and it is a good, beautiful, awesome thing when it's done within the boundaries that he established. But it can be a toxic thing when it's not done within those boundaries. Sex is a gift from God. And I think Satan has hijacked this and our culture has turned sex into a God itself to where something that we should just pursue at all costs and worship and life is all about sex. And then sometimes the church has done an injustice to it as well. And on the opposite extreme, the church has said, well, sex is just about procreation and it's something that's taboo and they almost treat it like it's something that we should never talk about and it's icky and gross and whatever. Guys, sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift. It is a gift from God. And it is fulfilling and it is satisfying when it is done within the context of the marriage covenant. But here's the thing, outside of it, it can be disastrous. And some of you guys know the pain of that. And so, as a married couple, what I challenge you to do, have intentional belly-to-belly time. And if there's a problem right now in the bedroom, I bet it didn't start in the bedroom. I bet it started because you weren't having the side-to-side time or the face-to-face time. Something went wrong along the way, and and it affected that. If you want a strong marriage, spend intentional time. And it's going to require some, some work, but it's worth it.
See, the Bible teaches that love, love is a choice we make, not a feeling we fall into. Years ago, I stopped using the phrase fall into love or they fell into love because it makes love sound accidental. I think there are feelings we have that we fall into, but love is more than a feeling. Love is a choice that we make. And there are days you have to choose to love your spouse, but that's what the Bible calls us to do. And every day you make the choice to love your spouse as Jesus has loved you. And when you do, it will make all the difference in the, in, in the world. I've mentioned my grandparents before when I've talked about marriage. They're in their upper 80s and been married for 60 some odd years. Great, godly example of marriage. And my grandma isn't doing the best in the world and she's had some strokes and so her memory comes and goes and she's in a nursing home and she uh, wasn't able to see my grandpa for almost a year because of COVID. And this was heartbreaking for both of them. Her mental state got worse during that time and of course he was a mess because he wanted to see her more than anything. And so they would still talk on the phone and there would be days when he would get so upset because she wouldn't recognize his voice on the phone and he would talk to my mom and say, she just doesn't know who I am. And so my mom would say, you know, it's, it's okay, it's okay. She, she's fine, she's being taken care of. You don't need to worry about it. And he would say, yeah, but I know who she is and I want her to know me. And it was just heartbreaking to see all this happen. But a few months ago, he was able, a couple months ago, he was able to see her for the first time. My aunt was with them and when they saw each other, she said it was like two teenagers. <laughs> that they started hugging all over each other, kissing one another. And again, my grandma's mental state isn't what it used to be. And at one point, she looked at my grandpa, his name's Dudley, that's a good Kentucky name, by the way. But she looked at my grandpa and she said, Dudley, if you're gonna keep kissing me like this, we need to get married. He just doesn't quite understand what's going on. But as gross as it was for my aunt, <laughs> there was something very sweet about it. Something very... Well, it's just the way it's supposed to be. My mom got to see my, see my grandma and take my grandpa to see her yesterday. And I talked to her on the phone last night and she said it was the same thing. They only got 30 minutes, but as soon as they saw each other, they were hugging each other, kissing each other. And at one point, <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell this, but at one point, my, uh, my, my grandma said, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired. I wanna go to bed. Dudley, you wanna come with me? And that's what she said to him. And he's like, I don't think the nurse are gonna would, would allow that. And again, my mom's telling me this story. He's like, I don't wanna hear that, but there's something very sweet about that. It's the way it's supposed to be. Committed to each other for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness, and in health. That's what God intended. And that's what God knows you can have today if you're married. You might be thinking, but Chad, my marriage is not that. <laughs> Here's how God's will works. God's will is not static, it is dynamic. And if you start today with his picture in mind, it'll take some work. But you start with his picture in mind, he will meet you where you are right now. And our church is here to help you get there. And you can have what he intended to be. It's not gonna be perfect. There's gonna be a lot of hard days. There's been hard days for this couple right here. But it will be the commitment, the covenant that God originally intended it to be. Today, we wanna let you know, no matter where you are, we love you, we're here for you. Let your marriage be a reflection of God's love so the world looks at our marriages and says, man, I want what they have.
Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today, for this time that we've had together. And I pray that we'd be a people who continue to pursue you, both as individuals, but if we're married, as couples as well. And I pray that if we are married, that we continue to pursue one another. Father, we love you and we know how much you love us. May we continue to follow your picture for life and for marriage. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.